So let me ask you, how are you with dress codes? Do you like dress codes? Maybe you hate dress codes. <laughs> I'll be honest, one of the things that I love about my job is dress flexibility. <laughs> Some days, I might dress up a little bit more. Some days, I show up to the office with a hoodie and jeans and a hat on. I love it. It's great. I love being able to have the flexibility. Uh, last week, I preached with my shirt tucked in and a jacket on. I was very tempted to wear a shirt and tuck it in today as well, but you know, feeling sick and tucking in your shirt, and just, I don't know, wasn't, wasn't jiving. But we recognize dress codes are a part of life. Uh, we have them at work. Some of you have them at work. Um, some churches have them more or less. Um, you have them for special celebrations. Those of you that are in the military, you have them. We have them in schools. There's even, they're even present in some restaurants. Uh, when Mindy and I lived in D.C., there would be times where we would be walking in a particular neighborhood and we'd see a restaurant where for, for you to go in, for a guy to go in, he had to be wearing a jacket, like a, a dress jacket. And I was always intrigued by those restaurants. I'm thinking, how good does your food have to be that you make people dress up to eat it? I mean, the fact this steak is so good that the laws of society require you to put on a coat. I'm like, I, I want to eat a steak that good. But we, we can recognize some dress codes are a bit ridiculous, maybe even oppressive. I, I remember in high school, my last three years of high school, I went to a Christian school, and we would play other Christian schools in basketball, and I kid you not, there was a team that required their men's team to wear sweatpants. I always thought that was a little weird. Not even guys could wear shorts. That felt a little bit oppressive and over the top. So, so sometimes dress codes aren't helpful. However, are there not occasions, are there not moments and activities where having a particular dress code matters. It's worthy of the moment, worthy of the occasion. Are there not some celebrations so important, so honorable, so valuable, that for you to just show up in a t-shirt and jeans would be dishonoring the moments? And for you to actually buck against the dress code is not sticking it to the man and down with oppressive dress codes, but actually irresponsible and dishonorable and prideful and rebellious. Well, we recognize that there are some times a dress code is appropriate, it's right, it's good, because the dress code communicates the weight and the meaning and the honor of a particular place. And so this month, we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians 15 as part of our 1 Corinthians series. And 1 Corinthians 15 is this beautiful extended meditation on the resurrection. And the Apostle Paul is sort of arguing with the, the Corinthian church about their misplaced ideas about the resurrection. See, they, they were minimizing and downplaying the resurrection. They, they had taken on some distorted views of the importance of the resurrection and what it was. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is confronting that. And so he starts off in the chapter by saying, hey, look, the gospel that you believed, the gospel that I proclaimed to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a resurrection gospel. We proclaim a, a Savior who was crucified and died, yes, but he got up out of the grave. 
He's been resurrected. And so that is the gospel, is a gospel of resurrection. And then he also points out, look, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, if there's no resurrection, then this is a waste of time. Let's pack it up and go home. Let's not do anything but eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection. And so he said to, to, to not believe in the resurrection is to have no hope past this life. And there's no point in living for Christ. And then as we saw last week, he pointed to the fact that the hope of the resurrection is the hope that our bodies are going to be transformed. That there is this moment where our bodies are going to be become transformed, where they used to be corrupted and weak and just merely mortal. Now they're going to be raised in power and glory and honor. And then as we're going to see this morning, as we conclude chapter 15, Paul is going to make this point, that the resurrection is not only a hope, it's a necessity. You see, we don't just look at the resurrection as something, oh, that is great, I can't wait for that moment. No, the resurrection is something you and I both need. Because you understand the kingdom of God has a dress code. The kingdom of God has a dress code. It is so glorious, so weighty, so just, so pure, so good, so beautiful, that what we wear matters. The kingdom of God has a dress code. We, to be a part of it, we need some new clothes. And so the title of my message this morning is Resurrection Dress Code. And here's my main point for us from this passage. We must be clothed with the resurrection of Christ. Like if we're going to experience the kingdom of God now and in eternity, our bodies, our souls must be clothed with the resurrection power of Christ. And so my hope this morning, my prayer this morning, is that we would be shaped in this truth, in this power. May God do that by his word and his spirit. And so let's, let's spend the next few moments reflecting on this truth, that we must be clothed with the resurrection of Christ. So last week, we looked at verses 35 through 49. And as I mentioned earlier, Paul speaks of the transformation of our bodies. We, we will experience, uh, that we're going to experience in resurrection. So our bodies they're going to die. They're going to be sown in corruption, but they're going to be raised in incorruption. They're going to be sown in dishonor, but they'll be raised in glory. They'll be sown in weakness, but they'll be raised in power. And now Paul is going to press further. He's going to say that glorious truth, this great hope that we have, hey, look, Corinthians, this is a necessity. Don't mistake this is just a nice to have. No, this is a need to have. So as he writes in verse 51, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. And so the great resurrection that those in Christ will experience, like those great, that great transformation that those in Christ will experience, this is not just something that we can look at as hope, but something that we actually have to submit ourselves to and say, I need this. I recognize my need, my absolute need for this. As Paul says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? Well, flesh and blood is the Bible's shorthand way of saying and talking about our fallen, corrupted human bodies and human nature. It's not merely just talking about our physical bodies and physical matter. No, but it's talking about our bodies, our souls, our humanness, and how those things are in rebellion to God because of sin. Flesh and blood, our flesh and blood, we've been blinded 
to the things of God. And as 1 Corinthians sets in contrast flesh and blood with that which is spiritual. Flesh and blood, those are the, that which is in rebellion to God is set in contrast to that which is spiritual, that which comes from the Holy Spirit, that which carries the light and the truth and the goodness and the beauty and the grace and the redemption that the Spirit brings. If our bodies, if our souls remain merely in the realm of flesh and blood, corrupted and rebellious and self-centered and self-speaking, if we remain spiritually blind and dead to the things of God, then we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is too glorious, too good, too pure. We don't just walk in there haphazardly. We don't just walk in, in our sin, in our corruption, in our rebellion, like we own the place. But we don't have a right to be there. And so Paul is making very clear Corinthians, First City Church. The resurrection is not just a hope, but a necessity. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Well, what do you do with the truth that you need a resurrection dress code? That you must be clothed with the resurrection of Christ? That resurrection is not just a hope, but a necessity. How do you respond to that? Because here, here is... The, the way that our culture can shape the, the way we view ourselves and our bodies pushes against this truth in a couple of ways. So, so on the one hand, our culture can teach us and shape us and get us to believe that, hey, we are enough, that, that we can perform, we can achieve, we, we can take responsibility enough that we can accomplish and so if we put forth our best efforts, if we try our best, if we give our all, get enough education and enough skill and enough knowledge, enough training, then look, we can live lives that are more or less successful. And if we use the knowledge and the technology and the resources at our disposal, well, we can keep death and decay and disease at bay. If we gain enough skill, we can control our circumstances if we take care of our bodies enough, well, well, then we can live long lives and be healthy. And so the net effect of this is essentially putting our hope in our performance. And so if we're honest and you pin us down, we say, yeah, I know I'm going to die one day. I know I'm going to get old. That, that happens. I'm not stupid. I recognize everybody dies. But functionally, we live as if we don't need resurrection. Functionally, we live as if we got this. I don't know about resurrection, but I can tell you, if I put forward enough, I'm going to be okay. And so there is a, a kind of pride in performance and achievement, the, the sense that we believe that we can accomplish enough to where this whole notion of resurrection seems foreign and far away, and we're never living in tune with our need. And so what ends up happening? Self-reliance, self-centeredness, a mentality that if I do enough, achieve enough, perform enough, then I'll be okay. So, so we live with that side. Swinging over to the other side, our culture is also kind of in this unique place where we're taught now to embrace 
the ugly and the unhealthy. It's this strange moment culturally in history where we're now that which is dysfunctional and unhealthy in many ways is celebrated and embraced. And so the, the effect of that is essentially, hey, you can't tell me that my unhealthy choices are bad. Don't judge me. Don't judge me for the ways that I may embrace my dysfunction and my unhealth. Don't judge me for the ways that I might distort and mutilate my body. And so there, there's this weird dynamic where I think in some ways we've pushed against the idolization of health and beauty. And in some ways that's good. And we've said, hey, the world is broken and it's dark and we suffer and there's pain and, and not all of us have, you know, look like models on magazine covers. And that's good to acknowledge those things. But we've got to this place now where we look at the darkness, we look at the dysfunction and the unhealth, and we look at it, and we smile at it, and we hug it, and we rub it all over, and we're like, this is, this is good, this is fine. We embrace it as if it isn't a problem. We drink deeply of it. And so we have this very sort of schizophrenic back and forth that goes on in our culture on the one hand, we can be prideful and idolize performance and idolize what we can achieve. And on the other hand, we wallow in dysfunction and darkness and unhealth. And in both cases, what happens? We minimize resurrection. We minimize our need for resurrection. And so again, let me ask, how do you respond to this truth? Well, where do you live on this spectrum? Are you more likely to perform and try to achieve and control your life, control your circumstances, think you got this, that you're enough? Or are you the one, man, you love living in the dark? You love embracing the brokenness and the transgressive. You love embracing the unhealth and the dysfunctional, just keeping it real. But in all of that, are you minimizing your need for the resurrection? Do you live with a sense of need? Do you recognize your need? Because listen, friends, you are not enough. You are not enough. Like if that shocks you, if that unsettles you, good, good. You cannot perform enough. You cannot achieve enough. You cannot control enough. You are not enough. The brokenness and the dysfunction and the sickness and the decay and the death of this world, look, it's going to crash in. It's going to come crashing into your life. How do I know this? Because it's not just a problem out there. It's not just something outside of you. No, sin and decay and death reside in you. And as they say, wherever you go, there you are. Like you carry within you the dysfunction and the decay you're not going to be able to perform enough. You're not going to be able to control enough. And on top of that, when you're doing that, here's what you do. You posture yourself in opposition to God. There's a pridefulness. There's a self-centeredness. There's a selfishness. There's a self-reliance. This is God. I don't need you. Or maybe, hey, if you could just throw me a bone once in a while, throw me an assist once in a while, I'm good. But largely, God, I got this. 
And so in our performance mentality, in minimizing the resurrection, we set ourselves in opposition to God and his glory. And conversely, like, look, I know the world is broken. It's messy, a lot of unhealth, a lot of ugly. And yeah, we should acknowledge that. Let's not be sentimental. Let's not ignore it. Let's not stick our head in the sand. But look, friends, embracing it as if, if we just come to this place where we're okay with it and celebrate it, that, that isn't going to lessen its sting. Like, friends, if you're in a dark pit, digging deeper doesn't help you. If you are enslaved, tightening the chains doesn't help you. Why would you live there? Why would you live there? But this is what happens, church, when we minimize our need for resurrection. When we try to perform our way out of our need, or if we just wallow in the sin and the brokenness. No, we need change. We need a new set of clothes. We need to be clothed with the resurrection of Christ. And so this is the great hope for us who recognize their need for resurrection. As Paul goes on to say, the change we need, praise God, is coming. Listen, I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And going back to verse 35, in, in chapter 15, verse 35, in that question, how are the dead raised? Well, here Paul gives an answer. In a very quick, precise moment, everything will be changed. It is an amazing truth in a quick, precise twinkling of an eye. The, the, the smallest perception of time, the twinkling of an eye is a way of saying that the fastest sort of moment in time. You know, when, when you kind of see, in, it's interesting, when you see like in movies, you see people's like transformation, there's always like this dramatic effect. For some reason right now I have that scene at the end of Beauty and the Beast where the beast transforms back into the prince and he's like all dramatic, like raised up in the air and it's like slowly he transforms. That's not what it's gonna be like. It's gonna be instantaneous. In this instantaneous moment, our bodies are going to go from corruption to incorruptibility, from mortal to immortality, from shame and sin to glory and power. There's going to be this incredible moment at the last trumpet. This is Paul is referring to the moment when Christ returns. When Jesus returns to renew all things, we are going to be changed, both those who have died and those who are alive to see Christ's return. As Paul makes clear, not everybody is going to die. There are going to be those who are alive when Jesus returns. Maybe that's us, maybe that's not. But regardless, if you are in the ground or if you are alive, change is coming. Change will come when Christ returns. What a glorious hope. What a glorious hope that we have. Just like that, no more corruption, only incorruptibility. 
No more mortality and decay and disease, only immortality and life everlasting. No more failures, no more disappointments, no more sin, only victory and power and everlasting joy. And so friends, rather than putting our hope in our performance, rather than wallowing in the darkness, why don't we put our hope in the resurrection power of Christ? Why do we not look to what Christ has accomplished for us and what he gives us? See, this is like showing up to the greatest of parties, the fanciest and most elegant with the best food and the best drink, the best celebration, the most fun and enjoyment and joy, and you show up with dirty, soiled clothes on, and you recognize, wow, I don't belong here. And so here's what you can do. Maybe you can go and try to scrub the dirt off a little bit and try to be a little less dirty and then try to make your way in. That ain't going to get you very far. Maybe you go, okay, I need to go buy my own set of clothes. And you go do that, but then you show up and you realize, wow, what I could afford, I'm still a bit out of place here. But here's who Jesus is like. He's like the one, the host of the party who sees you in your dirtiness. And he says, hey, come here. Let me give you my finest suits, my finest dress, and put this on and come sit at my table. See, Jesus doesn't say, go clean yourself up. Jesus doesn't say, hey, go change your clothes. No, he gives you his clothes, his righteousness, his resurrection power. This is the grace of God. Not performance, grace. And not do better so you can belong. No, come and receive grace. Humble yourself and receive grace. Receive this resurrection power. Friends, if this is what Jesus does for us, if he gives us his glory, his righteousness, his resurrection power, then performance, wallowing, that doesn't make any sense. If Jesus Christ is resurrected, if he's going to resurrect those who are in him, then performance and wallowing make no sense at all. Why would we live there? Why would we stay there? They seem silly and trite in comparison. How could our performance ever match the glory and power of the resurrected Son of God? And if the resurrected Son of God and his glory and his power are offered to us, why would we ever want to stay in the muck and the mire and the darkness? Oh, there is a resurrection dress code to be sure. But friends, this resurrection is for our good. This resurrection is for our good. For as Paul goes on to write, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, and the saying that is written will take place, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. I don't know about you, I hate death. I am tired of death. I'm tired of it breathing down my neck and the neck of my family and friends. I'm tired of the friends and family it's taken from me. I'm tired of the, the fear and the, the shadow that I live in and that my friends and family live in. Like, I'm just tired of it. 
I'm, I'm tired of, of, of just the, the terror and the horror that it inflicts on our world. And look, death is not just the natural order of things. It is a vicious monster. And even the most honorable, peaceful death, even in those moments, death is still present telling us, I got you. I am your master. You cannot escape me. I control you. And one day you will be mine. Like death haunts us and it taunts us and it chases us down. And the fear of death affects so much of our lives. The pain of death affects so much of our lives. And why is it that, why is it that we fear it so much? I don't think it's just because it's unknown. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a sense. We don't know what's on the other side. And so as Shakespeare wrote, death is that undiscovered country that no traveler returns from. So yeah, the unknown, we fear that. But as Paul implies here, our fear of death is deeper than that. You see, death comes with a sting. There is a poison that death inflicts. There, there is a, a sting that comes with it, the sting of sin. Because we intuitively recognize, as much as we try to bury it and deny it, on the other side of death, what, what, what death does is it, it, it strips us bare and lays us before God. And our sin will be judged. Like, like We intuitively recognize that death is going to move us to this place where now we are accountable for our sins. It's like death is this great bounty hunter that catches us, and now we're before the judge. And we know this. We recognize this. And that's part of the reason we fear death. But the great hope here that Paul points to, that is, as monstrous and as powerful as sin and death are, uh, through the power of Christ's resurrection, we don't need to fear it. I mean, this is the good of the resurrection for us. We don't need to fear it. When, when that great moment of transformation comes, death for all its power to wreck and ruin, for all its ability to instill fear in us, will be swallowed up in victory. Uh, like, like the picture here is, I mean, think of like in those movies, if you've ever seen where there's like this big army getting ready for battle and they're charging towards this smaller group of people and you recognize this army is monstrous and destructive and if it reaches these people, it's game over. And so this monstrous army is hard charging and just as they are about to get to the, this, this smaller army, the ground opens up and swallows it. And that entire army just gets swallowed up. Like that's the picture here, that death and all of its hard charging terror and horror and power, one day the ground is gonna open up and swallow it. Gone, done, game over. And Paul is so confident in this. He's so confident in the power of the resurrection, he starts actually to taunt death. <laughs> he uses scripture. He, he quotes from the prophets to taunt death. Death, where is your victory? Where are you at, death? Where'd you go? Where is your victory? Where is your sting? The, the resurrection of Christ has so defeated death that for all its power, all its terror, all the fear that it can afflict, all the victories and lives that it claims, Paul's like, where, where, where are you at? 
Where'd you go? Where's your power? Where's your sting? You, you, you claim to be able to destroy us and wreck and ruin us. You have buried billions and billions of bodies, but guess what? Through Jesus Christ, we rise. The, the, the sting that you inflict, yes, sin ravages this world, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and set free. No more sting. Through Jesus, we have victory. Through the resurrection, death will be swallowed up in victory. And so, friends, we need a change of clothes. There is a resurrection dress code. But praise God, this is for our good. Praise God for the victory that we have in Christ. Praise God that through Christ, the, the pain and the sting and the horror and the grief of death will be swallowed up. Never again to touch us. Never again to inflict its damage on us. Never again to torment and taunt us. No, we will be victorious we will stand on the last day as death is swallowed up in victory. That is the hope and the power of the resurrection. And this being our hope, this being the case, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. First City, may we not be a church that merely acknowledges the resurrection on paper, May we not be a church that merely sings and celebrates the resurrection as good as, in, as that is and as important that is, as that is. No, may we be a church that has such deep resurrection hope and confidence that we excel in the work that our Lord has given us. That we who are in Christ are so confident and so sure that we stand forgiven and set free right now because of what Jesus has done. That we know we are beloved children of God and the Spirit is at work in us, empowering us and transforming us and renewing us. That we are so confident that one day we will be clothed in the resurrection of Christ. That all those truths have so gripped our heart and so changed us and, and, and form us and shape us that we are steadfast and immovable that we refuse to move off the line of the resurrection, that, that we will not move off the line of the gospel of a crucified and resurrected Savior, that, that we will not move away from saying we need to turn from our sin and repent of our sin and there's nothing that we can do, that we are in absolute need of resurrection. But praise God, through the grace of God, we can experience that. May we never move off the truths of God's word May we never move off the line of obedience to God. Listen, you don't owe your sin a thing. You don't owe this world a thing. But our Lord and our Savior who has saved us, we know him everything. And so may we be steadfast and immovable and then always excelling in the work of the Lord. May we be excelling in loving and serving and sacrificing and sharing the gospel and giving our lives that others may know Christ and find their joy in him. And look, it's going to be hard. So many difficulties, so many trials, so many pains, so many hardships. This is 
a given. It's not going to be easy. But in those moments where it gets hard, in those days where it feels like all the effort, all the work, all that you are, are, are seeking to do to be faithful, it doesn't seem like it matters, remind yourself of this truth. Jesus got out of the grave. And if Jesus got out of the grave, you have every hope. You have every reason to keep being faithful. Your labor is not in vain. Your work is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus got out of the grave. And that Jesus got out of the grave means he's going to raise you up on the last day. If that's the trajectory of your life, victory and resurrection, listen, you cannot fail. Yeah, you may make mistakes, you may flub it, you may make a mess, but ultimately you will not fail. You will be resurrected in victory and power through Christ. Your labor is not in vain, so stay at it. Stay at it, church. Let's be so convinced of the resurrection that we excel in the work of the Lord. That's what it means. That's what it means to live in resurrection power. That's what it means to live with resurrection hope. Not just something way down the road, but hope right now, power right now, faithfulness right now, believing, come what may, that our labor is not in vain. And that keeps us faithful to the work that God has called us to. And so church, the resurrection is a great hope. It is a great hope, but it is also a necessity. Let us live with that awareness in complete and utter dependence upon our need for resurrection. But in that, let's take hold of the promises. Let's take hold of the hope. Let's take, take hold of the resurrection power that is available to us through Jesus Christ and live in the good of that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.